0: My name is Lisa Thompson, and I work for the Salvation Army at our national headquarters in Alexandria, Virginia. And I've been there for more than 11 years now. So, and 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 even before that, my my job before that, I was at the National Association of Evangelicals, and also worked on anti-trafficking issues while I was there at NAE. So it's been been quite a while now that I've had um, been involved in this issue, and. um, for, now that we've got everybody back in the room, I'm going to announce again uh, that I realized that uh, the program for today was not printed in the conference schedule. And so we didn't want folks to be confused about what it was we were really talking about and when we were going to be talking about it. So it's posted up here on the wall now. And it's, I apologize for so my not so beautiful writing, but hopefully you can make it make out the gist of it. And uh, so this is what we'll be the schedule will be following for the rest of the day. If you have questions about that, just you know, ask about their uh, Alright, so um, we are now at the next, uh, uh, a, new, a new topic, and it's going to be about the language of trafficking and prostitution and the power of words. And the reason I wanted to address this topic is because I think it's very important uh, to social workers and people advocates in the field of anti-trafficking that we can use appropriate words when we're, when we're talking about this issue. can <coughs> inadvertently use words maybe that aren't the best, but it's completely inadvertent. Uh, but words can be uh, very important in a lot of different subject areas. And I just want to see what... Um, actually, let's see. All right. Can you come back All right. So I'd like to hear from you. Let's just brainstorm. What are some of the um, areas just out in, you know, areas in which topics, social concerns, political concerns, in which the words we use are very important about and they actually to be a certain ideology about uh, that particular issue. So what would be some examples?
1: Next, we oh, okay, how do we
0: talk about Derogatory like, uh, to talk about the mentally ill. Uh, okay, what other, what other areas?
1: Yes? Yeah. Um,
0: elderly? Or yeah. old age? <laughs> yeah? Okay, can you write that down? So, can you give me some examples
1: of can how people.
0: In, well, old people.
1: Okay, old um, people. Or,
0: their age, their. Um, <laughs> <nowadays>. <laughs> now I'm saying I even, like, think of this. That's time. all right. But so, but, <laughs> that's what i refer to as. Not in a nice, not nice yes. way. Okay. What are some other issues that? Homicide. Hmm? Homicide. Homicide. Okay. And what were you thinking in that area? Um. Well, homicides are usually widely covered by media, and just the way that some of the newspaper articles are written, they put a lot of stigma on the victims and especially on the families that mm-hmm. they have to go through it again and again. Ways that are not truthful, um, in ways that are hurtful to them. Okay, so taking up that word, the way that things are communicated mm-hmm. in mass media and in, in basically in public mm-hmm. has an impact in on really how it brings people's perceptions mm-hmm. mm-hmm. about conditions. Okay, what are some more? Mm-hmm. You, immigration, big yeah. one Great. <laughs>
1: Like all people coming by a particular country, Mm -hmm. so Mm
2: -hmm.
1: illegals are—you know—people will say somebody's Mexican when they may not have come from Mexico. Right. Yeah. So using one
0: ethnicity to refer to a whole, giant, heterogeneous group of people. All right. What about race and ethnicity?
1: is Black, but African-American, some, they say wrong that, or some they're all not African, you know, um, so how do people identify you know, or Mexican, so Mexican and where we're from sometimes that could be an insult, um, but say Latino
0: or Latina, and um, yeah. So these are highly sensitive other areas? Yeah. I
1: think um, the whole idea of um, people experiencing disabilities. Uh,
0: mm-hmm. And it labels like the future outcomes or the
1: potential and mm-hmm. like the wrong language to use as a barrier to that. You, that. That. you know, and, and actually some of those words are even used as, you know across the spectrum to insult the whole right, the whole range of people,
0: right? So remember how everybody used to use the word retarded mm-hmm. uh,
1: <laughs> that was way um, you know, really friends, <laughs> 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 yeah. lesbian, gay, transgender people mm-hmm. are often, <coughs> lots of words for us. Okay. How does like single mothers? Oh really?
0: single often, mm-hmm. often,
1: mm-hmm.
0: always
1: professional the, medical lie, <laughs> the jar, yeah. right? no. yeah. a medical doctor why patients show up, Yeah. It gets us up the
3: we they're just not lying. <laughs> <laughs>
1: General. I mean, people say the poor like they're mm-hmm. all the same. Yeah. that mm-hmm. so it's a sweet story. Right. Um, I would add abortion. It's a an issue in which the language
0: is very, very quickly. change uh, but you know i think again you know, terms like these <laughs> words make you or how how do you think that maybe other persons feel. So let's just do three
1: the verse too. Social group. Mm. When I'm being immediately rejected just because of where I was raised, so it was how do I navigate this situation? So there was a lot of you know kind of that EQ trying to figure it out. How is how is this going to work? Okay, that's fair. This is excellent. This has never come up before. Now that I knew what to use (laughs) in the future. Okay.
0: Yeah. I'm sure this isn't a new one, but we talked about uh, just as women. (laughs) <laughs> and how do the words make you feel? It, it always depends on the most extreme form that I've just created. Any other ways make a dash
1: That, um, I said, I teach. And they said, well, where do you teach? And then somebody at back college. And they went, you look like a floozy. You could not <laughs> 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 oh, I said, well, I, we don't wear our hair in bun anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, thought, well, I don't think I look bad. <laughs> <true." laughs> <laughs> like, and, and I just. You want <laughs> to <you're> I <laughs> 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 <don't want> <laughs>
2: I
0: Based on sexual availability.
1: <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so that, that's so I really look promiscuous. <laughs> <laughs> or something to uh, Me, I'm I'm know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you know, it really <laughs> made me really think, oh, goodness, I'm not dressed appropriately. And I learned at my college. Social <laughs> workers sometimes, as a group, we sort of have this look about ourselves, like, "Yes." So happy. now we're going to share with the parents. Yes. Sorry. Sorry. I'm Oh, yeah. well, that's interesting. So Beth's pointing out here
0: that that we have to, so like just like uh, within gender, there are different kinds of ta- I mean, oftentimes when we think about in the faith community, we think of attacks coming from the outside. But there are faith attacks on the inside. You know, Between, you know, I'm making jokes about this denomination
1: from there, <laughs> or <laughs> beliefs, or whatever.
0: Okay? And another thing that just inner, kind of inner faith jokes is if you transition from, like, one take to another. i have Jewish background as well. I was raised Jewish all my life and then converted. And that whole thing, just on both sides, it was very,
1: like, lack of identity. And especially since I didn't look Jewish, everyone was just like, who knows this is a thing that, you can't, be <laughs> <laughs> wow. oh, I was like, like Do you think? <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, you yeah, know, it, was, it was wow. interesting. So, yeah. it's yeah. sort of a long that line. For 28 years, I, my husband was in the United Methodist Ministry, and um, the perceptions of what a pastor's wife uh, should be you know, certainly never quite fit who I was, but you know, but figuring out how to manage that um, for the sake so of the congregation. <laughs> so um, yeah, for the sake of the congregation, learning how they needed me to be versus right. ass- assuming that they would not necessarily care to know who I was. Right. Or how you should dress. Yeah. Yes, how you get a minister friend, a Methodist as well. I love
0: that Boston area. You know, he comes to this conference, and I, some of us said to him, You don't know, look like a oh, Methodist minister. You know, put your jeans on, like Jesus
1: handles, and you know. <laughs> 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 like Methodist, you know, and a lot of people's minds or whatever. What is, you know. You know,
0: so. Some of this then <laughs> I mean a, a feeling well or a result what what we're doing is stereotyping, right? Right. We're just putting mm-hmm. a, a, a big bit stereotyping. Um, and it's, what is another purpose in some of this? So. It puts us above the other. Well, they I do that. Good job. Thank you so Oh, you have another one. I'm oh, sorry.
3: I'm you done. I I am you. I mm-hmm. parent, you. Know, I love you. I love you. I love you. you. I you. I a you. I you. different business, I see the wheels love you. you. Right. Mm-hmm. I can't
0: remember ever being um,
1: really teased too much as a child, but when I was in China, I was called Big Nose. <laughs> 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 I was really of <laughs> 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 But My years, I, have <laughs> I have an adopted daughter as well, and it's really funny when I she's from Guatemala, and when I take her to a new place, mm-hmm. and I need to participate her as her mother. The people there will say, look at me and say, and hey, you are her mother. And, just, and they're like, oh, okay. So that's a, And being an older parent, too, um, and she's only eight, they attended to become her grandmother. So oh, I see. Right? Which doesn't make me feel very good. I <laughs> actually had an adopted family in South rural area, and they were just mm-hmm. on their way to, to the home gas yeah, station a gas whatever they called the police because they were a Caucasian family and their mother was from Guatemala or something in which it, yeah they thought they could have done this child
0: wow. so
1: yeah. you know we yeah. left the mother as well you know you're not you know what I mean it, it was crazy like they had this yes yeah, not
0: good one of my uh, really good friends She's a single white woman well she wasn't a single white woman he adopted a, a Chinese daughter and then she married a man from India yeah. So you can imagine, <laughs> <they're laughs> <laughs> it kind of looks the same you sometimes right. people are like, what? <laughs> yeah, so, our, you know, these different kind of family
1: structures and patterns, I believe. You know, people people well, most people people don't. Do else yeah. One thoughts, of the thoughts,
3: throw in the mix if I may, think mm-hmm. we talked about a couple of words to describe, well, I didn't mean to cut you oh, off, okay. to, to describe the mentally ill and developmentally disabled like crazy and and slow. It occurs to me that um, a lot of times people use words because they lack knowledge about Mm -hmm. someone or something or or, are fearful or want to distance themselves from, and those are a couple of words perhaps that uh, are part of that as well. Yeah,
0: so it sounds like we're hearing about position, we're hearing about distance, like, you know, either saying we're elevating ourselves or we're
1: distancing ourselves from someone or something or some type of person or some kind of illness or some kind of perception Um, and and fear. So it looks like there's a lot of things behind some of these words. I've one
2: more
1: that I wanted my team told me to bring up. And um, that is divorce. Um, You know, in the faith community you know, a lot of people look down on divorce, but and something I had experience some years ago that I still think about, mm-hmm. I found out that when you apply for insurance, if you're a woman, a divorced woman, that they charge you more money. Mm-hmm. As though there was something wrong with you. <laughs> so I, I had an uh, insurance agent tell me, he said, I'm just going to give you a tip, you never say you're divorced, you say you're single. Mm-hmm. Because they charge you more money. Oh, wow. So. Um, I know that now. So anytime I apply for insurance, I say I'm single, you know, instead of divorced. But I think there is something about that. Mm-hmm. Thank you for sharing. Now, one one thing interesting. You know, I was thinking of that we haven't really discussed about is weight. Excuse me. That we haven't
0: discussed about that We haven't discussed. It, it is
1: affiliation. Sometimes you lump just because one person mm-hmm. is in identifying in one political affiliation yeah. that they must subscribe to all of the ideology. Mm-hmm. That maybe not.
0: So there are a lot of ways that we divide ourselves, segregate ourselves, label each other, right? Okay. Well, same applies for trafficking and prostitution. See, frankly, I'm heading So brain I can't
1: Girls. The girls. Okay. What? What? Can you yeah, say it is is people can say we can say this
0: word and this session. What happened to this room <laughs> 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 okay. um, what else? Or, huh? Or, or Yeah. What else?
1: Let's start with C. Okay. C. Thank
0: <laughs> you. <do>. I think no one should ever ask <laughs> me. <so. laughs> my grandmother's
1: has myself my um, ah, son. Awesome, having somebody write for you. And that's <laughs> one of the advantages again, <laughs> <you> playing <get, laughs>
0: <laughs> the spelling pressures, transfer. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I was I was doing a session with a bunch of youth in Canada, and they said so that was the word they used for like, you know, mm-hmm. really dumb. Okay, well, we've got a pretty good list here. Thank you, everybody. Good job. I'm lucky. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Away from the paper. Away the paper. paper. <laughs> so, oh, oh, here's one that we offer here. Um, sex Worker. And, uh, on the side. all right well-
1: HIV/AIDS, and they—they—that was the term sex worker.
0: Mental health and public health uh, fields have really embraced these terms, and there's a lot. But there's a lot of history behind it. Now, I don't think everybody who's involved in public health and mental health has various reasons um, for doing this, or maybe even is cognizant of the yeah. debate that has gone on around these terms. So, one of my small missions. In is to make people aware that there has been a debate that there has been an agenda behind the evolution of these terms and particularly for people of faith it's very important that we come against this I mean do we really believe sex is a job do we really believe that God put any woman on this planet for the purpose of her being in prostitution because that is exactly what we're saying when we employ these kinds of terms now the, the, the positive thing that happened with these terms is that the people who were advocating for it, there were some who, uh, the, the people who came up with um, a couple different women who I think claimed the honor of having developed this term, but and they were proponents of the sex industry, make no mistake. However, they, they are correct in asserting that these words, the words in pink, which are the very common ones we hear how stigmatizing they are, how dehumanizing they are, how, how much they attack the person. So these got shifted that, that stigma away and, and did try to make what was going on seem more normal. And what I'm suggesting <coughs> is a middle road that we, not, we don't have to use these words, nor do we have to use these. And so what we have here are some suggested terms. And let's just quickly look at some of these, so and provide you know a rationale and give you some of the history. So terms not to use: sex work, sex workers, commercial sex work, adult services providers, <laughs> transactional sex. Oh <laughs>
2: yeah,
3: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: it's out there. It's in a, again, these are common in public health, in mental health. Um, yes, I have used the word um, sex sex work separate from a forced sex work, kind of to put instead of saying trafficking, um, human uh, labor trafficking versus sex trafficking. It's just it's all types of labor, and which is forced and which is not. Okay, so now here's where you have would I would change that. First of all, if you are trafficked into prostitution, it's not labor. It's rape. No. Okay. So any contextualizing of sex trafficking as as work mm-hmm. is grotesque. Mm-hmm. So I would really, try, you know, advise you to kind of stay away from that. Okay. Second of all, anytime we use the phrase sex work, we're, we're actually saying that we believe sex can be a job. Mm-hmm. So I think we can completely. Literally we don't even need to go there. I mean, there, are, there are particular um, venues and platforms and social and, and conferences where we can have this, the debate with people on the other side. But for those of us on the same page, <laughs> uh, we just need to agree. I don't, I don't think you guys are going to be too contentious about it here. That this normalizes the idea that women, you know, that selling sex is a normative state, a normative activity for women, and I reject that first. So, um, now, in terms of the force, okay, now here, here's an important thing to, to understand. There are people who say that every woman who's in prostitution is trafficked. Now, I would not ever say that, because trafficking is a very concrete, specific process that's defined by law. If you go through that process of having been recruited, harbored, transported, division, and detained by means of force one coercion, uh, for purposes of exploitation of okay, you're traffic can trafficking victim. But not every woman in prostitution has gone through that process. So that's what you are trying to get at that that problem. That that difference. So that does exist. It is a real existence between that there are some women who um, completely had their their autonomy their decision-making, their will, overridden in terms of their ever being involved in prostitution. And there are other women who, ma- who did make a decision to become involved in prostitution. Now,
1: just one more, okay.
0: some of the, some women, and all of those women who supposedly choose, are choosing from lack of options. It's that That's the key point to keep in mind, that the choice isn't a real choice, it's a choice that is a, a choice based on a choice to survive or not survive. So in that regard, I have a wonderful piece for you by my dear friend, Kristen, who's the editor of a magazine called Prism, And she wrote this piece in response to uh, an article that appeared on Nicholas um Anybody ever hear of Nicholas is? Just about. Okay, so he's a New York Times writer. He's become quite famous for writing on women's issues, particularly trafficking among them. And he's written. He and his wife co-authored a book called Half the Sky. And there's now been a big PBS film and big movie and on PBS. Okay. So he had a guest writer who wrote on his blog, and she used the phrase worker To describe women, it's women that she went basically, and she described later who really either trafficked or had no choices. And so Kristen wrote a really brilliant um, article um, to come at that, and I wanted to share this with you. Now, we don't have time to just read the whole thing, but for instance, she said, if you had to choose between eating rotten, rotten, maggoty food and starving to death, would you call that food a meal? Mm-hmm. If you had to choose between sleeping under a plastic sheet or on a, on a rainy night and sleeping exposed to the rain, would you call that sheet a home? If you had to choose between marrying your rapist and being stoned to death, uh, as in some traditional Muslim cultures, would you call that rapist a husband? So can we honestly call any of these acts eating rotten food, sleeping under a sheet, marrying your attacker, choices in the sense that this word is commonly understood? Now. This is the frame with which you need to understand the vast majority of prostitution that happens in this world. Because this whole choice discussion is a frame that pertains only to the West and developed, and and women of privilege. Because in the developing context, prostitution is overwhelmingly the state of women of oppression, of of lack of options of opportunities. Okay, so that's that. And then also you can note that um, about almost down to the bottom, it talks about in the video Madonna and the Whore, um, Oh, I meant. That was the one thing I forgot to do for this presentation. Google, after this session this evening. I would like all of you to Google for this thing, this uh, video by Nicholas Kristoff. Okay. Um, in it, he's talking about how we characterize women as Madonna's or Force. And in the beginning. I'm I'm with him. But by the end, he's he's talking about a woman who's been trafficked, and then he he ends up calling her a whore. And I feel like he completely undermined the whole point of what I think he was trying to do in the beginning. And to me, it was very offensive, use of the word. So, at any rate, um, this word, the pink one, was showing up very strongly in a man who was advocating
1: on behalf of women.
0: But, all right. I digress. So there's the choice part. Then there's these women who do small segments. The top of the egg, um, uh, Melissa Farley does a thing where she talks about prostitution in uh, the triangle. Dr. Melissa Farley is one of the most foremost uh, educators on issues concerning prostitution uh, internationally. And at the top of that triangle there's an you know, this apex of women who have some agency, who have some, you have power some degree of power and control over what's going on however this is still within an institution which is inherently violent harmful degrading and just because a person chooses something doesn't mean that the thing that they have chosen is has inherent worth. okay so I'll, most of what I'm saying here is explained to some extent in this handout But this is a great opportunity it really gave me a great opportunity to get into this so and I'm almost I um, I don't say forced prostitution I don't even use it it's not that there isn't such a thing as forced prostitution in the way that most people conceptualize it, but the moment you have forced prostitution, you have the flip of the coin, you have not forced prostitution gee, that must be good that that sounds like that's not so bad it sounds like just a choice like Julia Roberts it sounds exactly Mm -hmm. and that is a total joke I mean, talk about fantasy land. Huh, really? I mean, you have to be smoking crack to believe that kind of movie. Really? Because <laughs> yeah. it is just it's a joke. Yeah. But it was so profoundly influential. I know people, it's their favorite movie. <laughs> you know, and, and I, when it came out at the time, I, had, I didn't know the first thing about traffic and their competition, I thought, oh, isn't that romantic? <laughs> and this was a movie that really shaped the women, you know, young teenage, early 20s women when it came out. And it had such a profound effect over in Russia that they coined the phrase Pretty Woman Syndrome. Because it so influenced the attitudes of young Russian women to believe that they could find romance, love, affection through prostitution because of of this film. Now,
1: Yes. I'm just thinking about the idea of two comments. One is, like, I think the defense of these words is also to legitimize the men who are using the services. Like, do so they feel better about it? Because they don't really want to examine it. But my real comment was, are all youth trafficked?
0: Ah, uh, good point. Okay, yes. so yes. if you're under the age of, in the U.S., the way we look at this, is if you're under the age of 18, and it's a federal law, you cannot give meaningful consent to participation in a commercial sex act. Okay? So, ergo, you are a victim. Now, you might not be a trafficking victim, but you could be a victim of what we call commercial sexual exploitation. Okay, so if you have a pimp, you're a trafficking victim. Um, if, you, if you're a child and you don't have a pimp, you're still a victim of, quote, C-sex, commercial sexual exploitation of children. Because, person who is buying, even if you're selling yourself, is the person who presumably is an adult, who has agency, who has control, and who, and who is culpable in that circumstance. But under 18, they're not culpable.
1: So, so if most people educate prostitution at the age of 14, how can anybody be not
0: you know what? I, I love the way you Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, to me, like, I know there's a lot of,
1: like, people that try to make the distinction between I'm working with prostitutes and I'm working with sex trafficking victims. And it has to have, like, I love that you were like, we don't care about their stories. They're just here. We're helping them. Like, that was just so meaningful to me because I think there's this language issue that kind of divides the field. Exactly. And so the people who are working with the prostitutes are like, we don't like the word sex trafficking. Because, you know? And,
0: I don't like the commercial sex industry. I don't like any woman being used for of prostitution, for not distributing, or, or dancing, or but whatever. But it
1: divides us, and then we start talking about each other, which I love that you said that too. This ultimate respect that you have for you all people. So but to
0: help, I mean, basically, think of the, uh, think of the commercial sex industry as a continuum. We've got sex trafficking is the caboose of that train it is where the worst exploitation is going on. And then you have these other cars that are connected to the train. You have the street-level prostitution. You have call-girl call-out prostitution. You have um, massage parlor. uh, You know, various degrees of indoor prostitution. um, And and just moving on up the line. So it's a continuum. And for most people, they get the abuse that happens at that caboose of the train. They get that sex trafficking and is evil and wrong. But they don't get how up here, further up on the train, that that's been exploited. Um, because maybe they think that, one, they're looking with eyes, uh, they're, they're really looking with blinded eyes. Because women who are in the sex trade oftentimes have been conditioned to accept this. Because they were that 14 year old girl who grew up in prostitution, becomes the woman in prostitution, and this is her life. This is how she is her identity now and what else is she going to do and maybe she's in love with her pimp and so on and so forth so if you there are very real factors that hold a woman on the street even if there's no chains there even if you don't even see the pimp Um, but one of my I'm so glad you brought up that question because I think it's very important that we understand that children in prostitution become adult women in prostitution so with trafficking the, the, the good thing about the traffic anti-trafficking, or anti-sex trafficking movement is that ultimately, when people start connecting the dots, there does become greater consciousness and concern about all women in the commercial sex trade. And people begin seeing that, oh, these women are being groomed and conditioned, and mm, um, this guy who's called a pimp really is a sex trafficker. That's another thing, you know. Not all women in prostitution are sexually trafficked, but all pimps are sex traffickers. They recruit, they harbor, they transport, they provision and obtain, using force-bond coercion for exploiting people in the sex trade. That is the definition of a sex trafficker. So pimps are sex traffickers. So does that
1: mean all their girls are victims of sex trafficking? Yes.
0: because it's, it's very difficult in terms of prosecuting these cases. that You know, that if they're adults, the jury isn't going to go with it at all. They don't understand the conditioning, the, bond, the trauma bond, which we'll talk about this afternoon. People don't get this. So I, my view is that any temp-controlled woman, I don't care how old she is, if she's 25 or 70, she's a victim of traffic, in my book. All right. So, I've gotten way off of my soapbox now. I've got to wrap up. I've gone way over my time. um, But I have a couple more things to share with you. So, please, um, hopefully, this evening or later, take some time. um, Study this sheet. I hope you'll find it helpful. If you need more, um, actually, Vanguard University has a podcast at their Center for Women's Studies, um, which is Led by Sandra, Sandy Morgan, does this uh, um, not weekly, but she does a very frequent podcast on human trafficking. Issues. And somewhere, I think, in the 30s range, is a podcast that I did with her on the language that we used you know, this very topic. You might find that useful to listen to. I have another article for you about the phrase sex scandal. Another example of how we kind of cover up with a bit of veneer, a sheen, on sex trial, sexual abuse, sexual abuse, rape, and assault, by calling it a sex scandal. So that was a really great article. Another discussion, a piece of paper's coming around, um, where from my lister, we discussed the phrase, the world's oldest profession. Yeah. That's <laughs> that in. okay. I, I hate that phrase of a passion, and this little, pair, this little bit at the top tells you why. Okay. And then, lastly, we don't really have a chance to get into it, but um, I want to share with you as well this piece by Ron Swanson about words that hurt. Now, the piece is coming, this pink piece is coming around really in the context of um, domestic abuse and using verbal abuse as a form of domestic abuse in a family concept. But I think what we define here is verbal abuse. This is really what we're talking about. And it's interesting because in, um, she talks about different themes that come out in the types of words that we use to label people or attack people. So that was the main thing I wanted to, to share with you in this piece are those six themes that come out. And I think at least some of them apply here. And I would add in terms of the non-domestic context, because here we're not talking about domestic abuse, um, we're talking about institutional, uh, commercial, sexual abuse through the institution of prostitution. That I think that the words have a political purpose in normalizing sex trade. I think they have a purpose in um, legitimizing male sex rights men, she had to be able to have access to sex on demand. So, I would, I would add a seventh. That's last. Quote, I want you do it. going The poor paper that attacked Jane.
1: <laughs> <laughs> or vice versa.
0: So, reducing the essence of a person's identity to a label is dehumanizing and alienating. No one word or goal can encompass our true identity, but a word can easily eclipse our true identity. So it's really important when you're working in this area, particularly in our advocacy, our public advocacy, that we not use words that uh, label or eclipse the truth about what's happening. And our last thing, this is really the last thing, is, um, you know, if I'm working with someone as a, as a service provider who's come in my door and says, I'm a hoe, or I'm a hooker, or whatever, I'm not going to launch into this, this whole discussion that we just had yeah. right now. Like, okay, you're not a hoe. You're not a sex worker. You know, no, 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 Okay. Well down the road is therapy and healing, you can start having that discussion. But that's... So meet the person who's self-identifying as one of these words where they are. But in your academic context, in your political context, or just your social context with people, think about the preferred terminology sheet and employ those words. Okay. All right. we end. Great. And I want to tell you a little bit today about my five years with Project Rescue, um, using the arts to bring to for women and children in the aftercare homes as well as in our outreach centers. Um, first, I just wanted to tell you how I got into Rescue Arts um, and into Project Rescue. My parents founded Project Rescue when I was 16. And so I was on the first trip and the first visit um, at the age of 16 through the Red Lake Districts in Bombay. I remember being driven through that district, is so famous. Today, uh, where over 100,000 living girls were living in sexual slavery at that time, and just being overwhelmed as I saw girls who were my age and younger being forced to stand on the streets and wait for customers. I remember that night laying just crying on my pillow and hoping that one day I would be able to um, be a part of healing for girls like that. That same night, we had been driven to an apartment where about eleven or twelve women and girls who had been rescued had been brought to and were living. And they had been there a few months, but even in those few months, um, when we met them, they were so full of hope and joy. Uh, such a stark contrast to the women and girls that we would seen on the streets. And as we sat down in that apartment and in a big circle and had a chai together. Those ladies and girls just wanted to tell us how good God had been to them and how much hope they had received by them, Jesus. And so that experience left this indelible impression on me, knowing how much hope God could bring and understanding that even though healing is a journey, even that first um, understanding of God and our own value as women and children, can be life-changing. So I had this desire to work with Project Rescue in some way. When I went to college, um, all I really wanted to study was drama and dance. That's what I loved to do. So I remember my parents telling me, do what you love to do, and let God figure out what to do with it. So I studied drama education, and as I finished my student teaching and began began teaching in the school system, um, I decided to go back and get my master's in order to teach at a higher level. So it my master's in theater arts uh, with a focus of my research and my applied project on using the arts with survivors of trauma that I began to put the pieces together of how we could use the arts um, in their various forms with survivors of trauma as a tool for healing. So at the age of 25, when I finally had that aha moment of what God had been preparing me for, I was able to return to Project Rescue as an adult and go back to India with the idea of using the arts for healing in the homes. Now I had an idea that um, the arts would be effective and I had used them in foster care teens in southern Missouri, but I had no idea what that would look like when I got to India, and used it cross-culturally, um, and the survivors of trafficking. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about that today. But first, I just want to define for you what makes something Rescue Arts. Um, Rescue Arts is, in that five years of work in India and around the world, uh, Rescue Arts is what I developed a program or a method for bringing healing through the arts for facilitating healing through the arts with survivors of trauma. In order for any project or activity to be considered rescue arts or be considered a source of healing, it needs to have three components. The first is it needs to facilitate expression. So rescue arts provides a safe place for trauma survivors to create or to express based on their own ideas, their own life stories, their own decided content. So, Rescue is not going in and telling a young woman the worst that she should share or a good thing that she should share, not defining for her what she's going to express, but facilitating an activity or a, or a safe environment where she can decide what she's ready to express, and she can decide what is on her heart. and. Um, even what God is doing in her heart and in her human journey. The second thing that makes up rescue art is that it needs to facilitate cognition or the processing of what has been expressed. So we can facilitate expression and have a group of children paint something, but unless we work with them to process what they have expressed and unless we allow them to process that expression further um, through discussion of it with them, through further exploration for themselves, through further art projects or creative projects, we were not facilitating fiss- the whole human as possible. The third area that makes something rescue arts in our books is that it needs to incorporate relational development. Relational development is something that I have really gotten focused on through my work in India because in a communal, um, community based culture the healing is completely connected to how well the individual is connected to their community around them. So every project that I do with rescue arts always incorporates some level of ensemble, it incorporates some level of how to work together with their peers or those other participants in the project. So if I had a girl write a poem, and I know that you just saw the video uh, talking about the stories of Savita and the poem that she wrote about her life journey, the end of that story, or the rest of the is part of it, is that after writing that poem and sharing it with the whole partners around her, we then created an ensemble performance of that poem and a number of the ghost stories and animations, So Savito was able to share that story with others, but then also able to create a dramatic performance of the poem with her peers. So that ensemble performance and working together allowed them to have a sense of community, of camaraderie, and what they had been through. It is shocking how many times i work with trauma survivors who have lived in a group home for maybe one, two, or three years together and really do not know each other's stories because so far they haven't found that home or institution to be a safe place to process their healing. So rescue arts is an essential part of developing that atmosphere within the home or wherever we're working that builds up trust in one another and confidence that they can be here to be vulnerable uh, within the group that they know. So in order for it to be rescue arts, it needs to incorporate expression, cognition, and relational development. And most of my projects that I've done with um, trafficking survivors or those who are out of sexually exploited areas, um, those projects usually last at least two weeks if they're intensive. And many of my projects have gone six weeks or even five months if I lived on the same team as the girls did, as was the case in New Delhi. And I found that the longer that you're able to um, um, stick with a project with one group of participants, and that as long as that group of participants can remain the same all the project, the more healing that can take place. In your life. Okay. So, I want to talk to you a little bit about our role as a rescue arts facilitator, or our role even in incorporating creative within any country. I always came in as a resource or as an extra part of the healing journey for trafficking survivors. I wasn't their key counselor. I wasn't the home staff that lived with them 24-7 year after year. I was someone who came in and supplemented the program um, that was working with the survivors. So in realizing this, I think this is important whenever we volunteer or work part-time with an organization or a project, to understand our role as we come into the arts This will also help you if you're trying to bring who can teach dance or art, music, creative writing, drama, who you want to come in and use the arts for healing, and to understand that person's role as well, and to help them. know that ahead, but I also think of calculated risk in trusting them and being open and vulnerable in order for them to learn that we can I know that all of us are aware that the arts are an incredible tool for healing, which helps survivors. I do find that we're most comfortable at times with art, visual art, um, tangible projects like that comfortable with the concepts of art therapy, but most of us haven't experienced um, to the same extent how dance can be um, Creative a writing, dramatic performance, songwriting, so I'd just like to touch on why each of these areas of the arts um, are areas that I, I incorporate into almost every project that I do with trauma survivors. I try to incorporate at least four areas of the creative arts and performing arts in order to make a way, a, a comfortable way, for every survivor to find healing. Because every survivor is different. First, art is so beneficial because it's a t- concrete accomplishment. It's a jumping off point for questions. Uh, we can look at what survivors have created and have created, and ask questions and go somewhere from there. Um, it's great for children or those who are not literate. I used a lot of journaling and creative writing when I first arrived in India. I quickly had to adapt that because so many of the roles I was working with were either illiterate or very, very, very behind in their education. They were much more comfortable with visual art, so that's a great thing to think about, uh, what, who your audience is going to be. Art also allows survivors to express trauma from before they can speak. So we know that when trauma has happened, to a child before they have words, it is very difficult for them to put that, at memory, that, what they're processing into words. So it's great to start out with visual art and movement. Which brings us to dance or movement. Um, dance releases endorphins, just like any other exercise. But I found that it also gives the creative juices the expressive brain moving. Um, I've had girls who refuse to do any other. Writing or art activity, but they would come because they wanted to learn how to do a new dance. So they would all come and we would open with 20 minutes of learning a new dance, just a basic choreographed modern dance. And by the end of that 20 minutes, the juices were flowing and their energy was there and their confidence was there and they were ready to journal. They had something they wanted to share. And their emotions were in your, out on their sleeves um, because they had started with dance. Dance also builds confidence when perhaps a survivor is struggling in school or in in any other area of their life to feel that they can learn to move and dance and be affirmed in that. Dance builds comfort with the survivor's own body. We know that survivors can completely dissociate from their body and their physical side of what has happened to them. And dance is a great way to reconnect Not only the survivor with her own physical expression and the the ability of her body, but also to um, teach survivors to make physical contact with one another in a healthy way, to learn to say no when they're uncomfortable with someone touching them, but also learn to open themselves up to healthy physical contact. Last, and teaches us to glorify God with our body and our Important First Chronicles six nineteen and that has been an important aspect too as girls um, who come into Christian homes from um, the red Lake districts all they've known for is dancing for customers and their mothers' customers in the brothels but teaching them that dance can still be good but um, to glorify God how they move. creative writing is the third area that I love and it is a great an outlet for emotions. And it's also a tangible connection to God in prayer. So if it's a loosely faith-based prayer to whoever we would like to pray to, to journal and to write, allows us to feel more connected as we pray. Creative writing, whenever I'm teaching a group to write and create, I give two, uh, two standards by which they can judge that it's good writing or it's good art. I say that good writing is truth and it's details. So it has to be true to their experience in life in some way, and they have to have details in it. So one of the creative exor- writing exercises that we do is journaling 20 little bitty details of a memory that they remember. And those details could be red shoes, loud noise, muffled, darkness, dirty. It could be just words, but it's a lot distance we to begin to express that memory that we probably haven't ever touched on. And so we begin to express it just through little details. And now we really begin to bring that memory back and to go even a little bit deeper the next time we get together. And then finally... Uh, I just wanted to touch on drama. It's such a great way um, to have collective working together, collective creation, and can also be anonymous. You never know the one that's performing a story. You don't know who that happened to or who wrote it. So, drama is an incredible way to allow a survivor to own their own voice. It gives a voice to those who've always had someone else telling their story or speaking for them allowing them to be their own voice. I wish that I could go further into all the areas of the arts and why they can be so beneficial in very specific ways and specific projects, but for today I just wanted to bring up how every area of the arts is so effective and so helpful. And if you just are wanting to start bringing in creativity um, into your work environment and those you work with, Pick an area of the arts that you love the most or you're most comfortable with, start there, and then begin the to incorporate other areas as you get more comfortable with okay. Last, I want to just touch on several questions to ask yourself. As a, facility, a facilitator of healing through the arts, what questions would you want to ask yourself when as designing your own project? I do not design rescue rights projects for others, I simply, in my trainings, teach others how to design a project. So here are some questions to consider in working with your own group um, or your own project. First, do I already have a relationship with participants? If you already have a relationship that openness, the expression, even the cognition, the processing of been expressed all of that will go so much quicker because that relationship is already established. If you have zero relationship and you need to plan in, if you have a six-week project, if you be in a certain place for six weeks, plan in a full week of just building relationship and trust. So plan that time into the beginning and not and plan to not make as much progress until that relationship has been established. Second, ask yourself how long will the project be that will determine how deep you can go with participants. It will determine how tough of questions you can ask, and how deeply they can express the depth of trauma or negative Mm -hmm. memories Um, will determine so much depending on how long you'll be with those participants. The third question to ask yourself is how many participants will be involved will to be consistent. In a smaller group of participants, we're going to be able to go deeper, develop trust faster, and really make more process in their healing journey. So for me, in working in India, everything is in huge groups, and I have to insist that my groups that I work with be about 12, roles or less. And that's really hard for them to do. And sometimes I get 16 to 20 girls, and then I have to divide it up into subgroups and have leaders of each group that I trust. And so if there's only you, then make sure that the group is small enough for that. How many people be involved? And if their attendance will be consistent, it really is difficult for building really trust in a group. and several of them are always community growing. But if it's a community center, a lot of times you don't have control over that, so plan the beginning of every session to the group building time again is to reestablish that trust that you've worked so hard in the previous session to establish. The fourth question, to ask yourself is how long and frequent couple of sessions be? So if sessions are only a half hour each, there's only so far you can go in that half hour. And most of the time the kids um, from challenging backgrounds that for, it takes a good 20 minutes to get them settled and focused. So keep that in mind. And if the sessions are more frequent, if you're able to work with a group of girls or guys several times a week for several weeks instead of once a week for many weeks, that's better because the more frequent the easier it is to establish that trust and build a sense of that group and community. The fifth question is what is the easiest and favorite art form participants. So in the U.S. I tend to use a lot more creative writing and drama and music. In India, I tend to use a lot more dance them there, and art is so important also to help them process and express in a way that they're all on the same page, it's not dependent on their literacy. Sixth, how briefly can I discuss my faith and scripture in sessions? And do, all, do participants already believe in Jesus? So if you're in a completely secular environment in which you are not able to talk about faith in any way, there's only a certain place, a certain depth that you can go to the participants. I found, after working in secular environments in the U.S. and then in working in faith-based environments with project rescue homes and so on homes in India, as well as outreach programs and community centers in India, when the group already has a basic understanding that there is a God who loves me, who values me, no matter what has happened to me, who has a future for me, that makes a a enormous difference in their healing journey. There's nothing we can do about that if we're not allowed to talk about our faith. But keep that in mind that in settings where you are able to share your faith and talk about it that will just catapult the process, uh, that healing process, further forward. If you are able to really talk about your faith, maybe it's a a church after-school program, or uh, a project that you've established yourself, uh, that you have control over, then by all means, I found that every session, Goes better when I'm able to pray at the beginning and the end of each session that I do, and when I'm able to incorporate scripture into every single session. And when I'm able to do that, there's something about praying together as a group that brings that focus to where we are right then. I've had girls have their pimp, uh, they may have been rescued a year before, but they still have a pimp with their cell phone number. Call them right before session, and they're absolutely Distracted and in another place and a different person after they get off the phone. And so being able to just pray and get our hearts and our minds all back in the same place is going to be um, different. And then to use scripture, scripture has a lot of power. Um, when we see life-giving scriptures over survivors and they begin to recognize that that's truth and that truth changes the way that they see themselves and that it makes all the difference. The other question that you should ask yourself in planning a uh, project of Healing Through the Arts is what challenges are participants facing behaviorally, psychologically, and physically? Um, this will allow you to consider what theme you could possibly focus on for the project. It could be an ongoing theme throughout the project um, such as identity, love, a place, family, whatever thing you want to focus on. And how severe is participant trauma been, And that's going to make a huge impact on how deep you can go and what areas you might want to be careful about touching on from the first day on being aware of what the students are facing. The eighth question is what is the institution or program director's goal for this project? A lot of times we come in to a project or institution with our own goals and what we see as the necessary healing for survivors. But it's so important to recognize that that director of the local projects is the one that's going to be in those survivors' lives for the longest. And that their desires and goals matter. So a lot of times in India, the director's desire was that the goals were in India and spread a business program or the girls learned a drama who to perform at some outreach program. And that wasn't my goal, but I was careful to incorporate their goals in with my own desires for healing and expression relational development with survivors. The next question, out of 11, is what will staff be involved in the project? The more that you can get staff involved, local staff involved in what you're doing, the better, but a lot of times staff so uh, strapped for time and focus that they're so happy to give you the entire uh, group of participants and just go do their own thing. If you can find one staff that has heart for what you're doing really cares about participants, and they will be there every session, that's going to help survivors to find more long term healing. And after the project is over, that staff is going to be able to follow up. Ten, what tools can I leave behind to help participants remain healthy and grow? My team always leaves behind art supplies, uh, creative supplies, and also leaves behind a basic training manual for staff to be able to head up projects in the future on their own. And then last, what tools can I leave behind to strengthen long-term relationships and participants' lives? So, strengthening their relationships with one another, and with their staff, what can I leave behind for that to happen? If you ask yourself these questions, you're going to be well down the road on designing your own rescue record project, designing your own project, whatever the link, whatever the group, uh, for the road trauma survivors that you want to work with. I wish you all the best in incorporating healing through the arts where you work. So I should clarify a couple things that up front. First of all, I'm not a social worker. <laughs> Don't shoot me. And uh, second of all, uh, I'm not a certified uh, trauma specialist. So, but what I what I do know is is sex trafficking and commercial sexual exploitation. Now, the other thing that's helping me out here is that the, the material I'm sharing it was originally developed. Sections of it was developed by my colleague. Doctor Michael Smith. Okay, so he's a PhD. He is a, he is a licensed clinical social worker, and he studied. Uh, he's worked with sex offenders and all this stuff. So I, I have benefit of my colleague Michael Smith's uh, material to as the basis here. And then what I'll be I'll be adding in some. some You'll notice as I'm some on the slides that down in the one little corner, if you see an LT, that means it's, it's completely new material that, that wasn't part of Michael's original stuff. Um, that that's me adding more, hopefully more beef. <laughs> now the other thing is, I, I mean, it's a bit terrifying to be giving this kind of presentation to someone who is certified specialist, you probably <laughs> should be giving this presentation. So when I heard Kathy say yeah, that, I was like, God, you've got to be kidding me. Uh, um, so anyway, but maybe this is a safeguard. So if I say anything that's completely uh, ludicrous okay. or wrong, she can't help but correct me. <laughs> okay, one of my favorite topics, I don't know, I'm, I'm into the questions, but I, I think he has, I think Salvation uh, Army has a video Webinars. Yeah, we've done a webinar that Michael did. This is the basis of that. Had, yeah. Well, good. Wow. Ah, all right. <laughs> <laughs> now we <maybe laughs> have nothing to worry about. <laughs> <laughs> about. Yeah, I don't know. So, well, between the two of us, also. we'll get it done. done. All right. Oh, all right. I forgot to fix this. <laughs> so the other thing is, this has been a, a work in progress up until about thirty minutes ago. All right. <laughs> So, I forgot to finish the overview page, so we'll skip that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So, let me just give you a brief overview about what we're gonna be talking about, trauma-informed, trauma-focused services. We'll be uh, putting this in the context of sex trafficking and prostitution. Uh, We'll be looking specifically at uh, some pimps and pimp behavior and how it um, goes into mind control create special ones that have to be overcome. And then we'll look at some of the, the um, big picture models that are out there that people are using that address trauma. And this is, I, my goal is not to get into the weeds of these models and give you every nut and bolt of how this works. It's just to present it as a, as a potential modality that you would want to use should some of you end up working with survivors Also, this isn't about. This isn't one training. Isn't meant to equip you to be the trauma counselor. (laughs) This is just an introduction to the issue of trauma and how it can segue into trafficking and how it should inform uh, our 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 really just overarch our responses to the the trafficking survivor. This would be the framework from which I think we. Everything that we do, in my personal perspective. Okay, and probably a lot of you, as social workers, have been involved in counseling or even as students, you probably already know some of the things that I'll be sharing. But hopefully, just contextualizing it within the issue of sex trafficking will provide uh, some new ways of thinking about these things. So, trauma-informed care, so basically, just the, the idea that understanding that the clients and the symptoms that they've experienced as a result of the expectation that they've had and how that affected them, that we, by understanding that trauma and their symptoms and so forth, that we can provide them the best kind of care. So, providing trauma-informed services involves recognizing the impact of traumatic experiences on an individual's life and behavior and on the perceptions of themselves and their bodies our intention is to do harm, obviously, to not exacerbate any of their experiences, to avoid re-traumatization, uh, and to honor their experiences. A lot of what we're, what you see as symptoms is actually them adapting, them being creative, them uh, creating survival strategies. So we don't necessarily want to just outright criticize that and... Uh, look at that as all wrong or harmful because sometimes that's going to manifest itself in ways that don't necessarily work for us or our society, but yet that's what has actually kept them going and helped them survive. So um, we just want to help help them transition so that they can reach healthier ways uh, of coping. Now each person responds to trauma differently so we want to and everybody's experiences are different. And it really, we're not, it's not about saying that somebody's situation or context of exploitation is worse than another's. We want to honor everybody's individualistic um, responses. Additionally, the symptoms, as I already mentioned, that their symptoms are the person's best attempt in the moment to cope with what's been happening. So their, their symptoms really should be viewed as survival strategies. Now, trauma-informed means that we understand something about trauma and when we're working with individuals, but we want to kind of even ratchet it up a level to be trauma focused. That the issue of trauma is really what overarched all the aspects of the services that we provide. So while everyone involved in service provision needs to be informed and aware of trauma and and triggers and what sets people off and, and their connections and working with survivors, with trauma-focused care, we're specifically dealing with healing from, a, uh, from trauma's impact, providing what we, um, sorry, I this whole <laughs> trauma has really got me on <laughs> So, Lord, please help me get my tongue untied. <laughs> okay. So, anyway, backing up. The trauma-focused care is done professionally and thoughtfully with great concern for the individual's emotional state. So, what are we talking about when we're talking about trauma? Well, uh, psychological trauma can involve traumatic experiences which can be overwhelming, uh, usually beyond a person's normal ability to cope. Oftentimes, it has to do with some sort of threat to the physical or mental well-being. It results in it results in extreme vulnerability or complete loss of control, and that seems to be one of the overarching markers. Loss of control and any ability to respond to the situation and leave a person feeling chronic and helpless and fearful. And it also can for family disruptive relationships and their basic belief systems. Now, I've heard you me mention Michael Smith, his initials are MAS. <laughs> so, this is how he has defined psychological trauma as a psychic wound or hurt that involves a sense of loss beyond one's control and results in a permanently altered sense of safety and belief system. And that permanently altered, that's important because it really is almost impossible to completely eradicate these, co- these trauma triggers once they've been established. You can almost to it, but not quite. If you uh, there's actually a different order to help me with that at the, um, well, if I think of it later, I'll come back to it. But I can't come up with the term right now. But at any rate, you can't completely generally get rid of the triggers that cause trauma. And traumas range from one time to repeated life-threatening events that lead to persistent feelings of vulnerability. Oh, no. <laughs> I didn't know that um, up at the top of America. All right. So type what some people have called type one traumas result from single unanticipated events. So it's usually a one-time type of thing, or it might it might have long-term consequences, but it's it's just one type of thing, like an accident, a crime, being held at gunpoint, uh, some, you know losing your home in a fire, something like that. And of course, there's so many that come to mind. out of recent events, so the tsunami can be a great example. Haiti earthquake, um, 9/11, you know, serious, unanticipated events that um, disrupt our lives in in, in, in unalterable ways. And these, and these type one traumas can create symptoms right away. Um, usually, the individual will have very uh, clear, and full memories of the experience. They might even be preoccupied with the idea of omens and that they try to figure out there was some way they could have sensed what was going to happen to them. And they might even have misperceptions that involve hallucinations about and and time distortions. So one example that was out there was that the impression of being visited by a family member unexpectedly who killed in a car accident so the sensation that this person has come to you even though they're deceased type true trauma would involve on exposure to an ongoing trauma, something that is is long-standing, it's repetitive, is prolonged. It's serial in nature. It's just the day to day reality of your life. So that can be involved physical and psychological violence. Of course sexual abuse, usually we think uh, you know, we think about it in a familial context, but usually isn't like a one time event it's thing happening childhood abuse and neglect uh, war related experiences especially about people in combat that they would have um, suffered this type of trauma and people uh, involved either who are substance abusers or raised in a substance abuse environment we would see these types of traumas as well now the symptoms uh, can involve denial and psychic numbing think a lot of dissociation and dissociative states and escalating to uh, conditions of rage and not being able to control and moderate one's reactions both towards the self and to others. Now, if, if in a, say, after a, a type 1 trauma, the trauma, you, you feel immediately, like you're not yourself, you immediately have uh, intrusions and fears and, and struggle with dealing with, this, with, with the situation. That would be an acute stress disorder, it happened, the onset was right away. But post-traumatic stress disorder does mean that it's the onset of the trauma, that that you start wrestling with symptoms somewhere down the road. So, but generally, if you you are a person with post-traumatic stress disorder, probably you all have heard the acronym of PTSD. The person has experienced or witnessed or was confronted with an event or events that involved actual or threatened death, a serious injury or a threat to the physical integrity of the self or others. So it doesn't always have to be that you're, you're you yourself are the one who's experiencing trauma, but it can be others that you see know see and so forth. again, your the response is involved intense fear, helplessness, horror, and the person continues to experience reactions associated with the traumatic event such as flashbacks, nightmares, and maybe avoiding some kinds of situations that we want Now, chronic trauma. So we've already talked about type 2 trauma. So this is kind of getting back to that type 2 where the situation is prolonged, it's repeated, uh, it, it, it's sustained. This is the everyday reality of the individuals. And this is an area that has really been pioneered by Dr. Judith Herman, looking at you know, to just adding that the PTSD was not a sufficient diagnosis, diagnostic that were people whose problem was so severe, so profound, that it deserved a different um, designation. So she actually coined the phrase complex PTSD. So again, we're talking about the long repeated traumatic events, and this resulted in extreme alterations of effect regulation. So where you can tell uh, your emotions, you might like Beth was thinking earlier of the people who were the living dead that she saw in the Red Light District. This is what we're talking about. Um, how they perceive themselves, how they relate with others, and also all oh, their perception of the perpetrators, of the people who actually uh, perpetrated against them. And of course, this being such a victim for so long actually creates vulnerabilities where it's easier for them to be victimized by others. So it sets them up for even more victimization. So the point then is that trauma really exists in a continuum. You have the single one-time event that maybe heard an individual, uh, larger events, maybe broader range of individuals, but then broad, ongoing, prolonged uh, context of exploitation and, and trauma that happens. So there's there's a continuum of trauma. So you can think of type one, type two, or post, uh, PTSD or complex PTSD. Now there's another phrase out there that I think will be that's important in the context of sex trafficking and prostitution, which is betrayal. Uh, the idea that uh, a trust has been violated, that the usually rooted in the notion that. The person who did the exploitation, who created the trauma, was someone who was in a position to trust for support it or you know, a caretaker. So, the sense of betrayal that the victim has is intensified as a result. Now, here's where we get into looking at sex trafficking and prostitution, what I call twin sisters of trauma. Now, as I spoke about earlier today, and I don't view prostitution and sex trafficking as um, one than the same. They are different. Uh, trafficking is a very specific process, and we talked a little bit about that definition. And that uh, trafficking involves recruitment, harboring, transportation, provisioning, and obtaining of a person. And typically, we call it a severe form of trafficking when it adds elements of force, body, coercion. And, and then it usually it has a purpose of exploitation. And in today's context, that purpose of exploitation is abuse in the commercial sex industry, so using them repeatedly, uh, selling them in the commercial sex industry. Now, the prostitution is, you know, you don't have to be trafficked to be in prostitution. However, once you're trafficked and you're in the commercial sex industry and you're in prostitution, the sex trafficking victim's experiences of daily life and the woman in prostitution's experiences of of daily life are the same. So the victim of sex trafficking will have the trauma of the sex trafficking process of having perhaps been betrayed by family member and sold, being kidnapped and abducted, um, maybe being groomed as a result of uh, child sexual abuse in the home and then ultimately finding themselves in the sex industry. So they'll have that history, but then, bam, they're in the sex industry and they're going to be in this milieu um, that, that is absolutely Uh, toxic. uh, It's uh, absolutely uh, toxic uh, to the human soul. So, So psychologically... What you're saying
1: is that um, the way that they might get into the act might be two different ways. once they're in it, they may have... Yes,
0: exactly. So, a sex sex trafficked person in prostitution versus a woman who's not sex trafficked. I'm not sure how. She might have decided, um, I'm going to Prostitute, or I'm going to strip to pay off my college debt, and then ultimately she's she usually going to be providing prostitution services. So she had more agency. She, she didn't go through the trafficking process ostensibly. Okay. So there are two different scenarios. So I would think that the woman who's coming through the sex trafficking process has a history, or definitely, would have a, a history of trauma. Because it's just the fact of the definition of trafficking. We don't really know the history of the woman who's in prostitution. but this other means, we need to find that out. We might find out if it seems like a lot of women in prostitution do have history that um, that lend them, yeah, sexual molestation that really set them on a the course for uh, you know a trap to enter the sex trade, if you will. But once you're in the sex trade, there are, the life in the sex trade is pretty much it is the same for every woman, whether they're trafficked it or not. The experiences of it are very similar. All right. Now, in, in prostitution, there is a very high level, documented level of post-traumatic stress disorder. And you might have heard me mention Dr. Melissa Farley earlier today. Um, she has a project called Prostitution Research and Education, based out of San Francisco and she's written a book called Prostitution, Trafficking, and Traumatic Stress. It's really it's hard for to me, but anybody involved in providing services to sex trafficking survivors, that is your the number one book. <laughs> the first book you should read is that one. Now, some of her research, they estimated that um, PTSD was at 68%, which was in the same range as that of combat seeking, or excuse me, treatment seeking combat health. And you can imagine the intensity of the trauma of a veteran who's been in combat, you know, bombs exploding, limbs in the air, the intensity of that kind of trauma. So with women in prostitution, they're, they're in that same range, that, that level of intensity of trauma. And she also found that at least 89% of people in prostitution from nine countries wanted to escape prostitution. And I imagine if you got to know the longer that that number would actually go up. So, what is life like for people in prostitution? What is that? Why would it be traumatic? Well, study after study, and really you could probably stack them almost to the same is documenting the kinds of violence that are out there. Threats with weapons, abandonment in remote areas, robbery, kidnapping, strangulation, stabbing, physical assault, and rape. Now, interestingly, there's a notion out there that women in prostitution can't be raped. As if, you know, that they can't, that they, have, as if they don't have a right to say no. Or that once they've been paid money, they can't give it back. But somehow, just because they're being paid, that, that means anything is allowed to be perpetrated against their body. So so rape really is a normative experience, fortunately, for women in prostitution. Now, I'm sure most of you are very, very acutely familiar with the impact of sexual trauma and that what one sexual assault can do to an individual, much, much less serial sexual assaults. But, so, but of course, it stands to reason that the more severe the sexual abuse, the more severe the impact. No rocket science there. But today we need to think about that what, what would increase the level of sexual trauma? Well, what was the frequency of the, of the, of the sexual assault? Um, the, did, they, did the activity happen over a long period of time? Did, were, they, were the sexual activities wide ranging and extensive? I mean, you know, we're talking. There's a difference between fondling and anal sex. Uh, was there more than one perpetrator? Well, when we're talking sex trafficking and prostitution. Of course, there's, there's more than one perpetrator. There's Hundreds, if not thousands, of perpetrators. Uh, sexual involvement involves physical violation of force. First of course, your traffics, that's absolutely gross. Uh, in, in terms of your uh, introduction to the sex trade, and for many women who are in prostitution by other means, they still experience uh, forced violation all the time. Is the abuser older in prostitution? oftentimes the the age differences between the sex buyer and the person that they're purchasing can be huge. That's very high. And another question to consider is the relationship to the perpetrator is close. So that might be interesting if we're talking about um, who the pen is. It could be the content that is an alien member. Uh, So the only two factors to consider in terms of exacerbating the level of sexual problems. Now, of course, sexual trauma is unique because the setting of the atrocity, you, you can't escape the setting of a crime. You know, if, if I'm held at gunpoint in a bank, I don't have to go to that bank anymore if I'm fortunate enough to leave But if I'm serially raped, or you know, gang raped, or raped by multiple men at different times, the setting where that abuse happens is, is where I live. It's where my mind and body are. So I'm never free to completely escape the setting from which the these happen. So this is the factor that really sets sexual abuse apart from other types of um, exploitation. Um. Now, another really hugely important fact to consider is that if, you ha- if an individual has been conditioned, groomed for prostitution, it doesn't matter if they might... Look like, or actually, be seeking a sex buyer, because they really don't have the right to refuse consent. Any type of sex act perpetrated, you know, whether they're, that anybody who buys sex from them is still buying the sex of rape. You follow what I'm saying? Okay. Just because um, they look like women, they might work hard to attract a customer, and in fact, that could be their very survival depends upon it. If they don't bring home the right quota tonight, then who knows what kind of experiences they might have. So bringing home 500 or a $1,000 might be the most logical thing to do, and they're going to work really hard to do it. That doesn't mean that the type of the sexual experience between them and the sex buyer is still one in which it, 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 her, she's not getting her consent. She's just doing it to survive.
1: Yeah, isn't it true? Like keeping themselves safe. Like if they're nice to the person, the person might be nicer to them. Mm-hmm. so when they're in alone in the room, anything can happen. So it's their way of manipulating the situation or controlling it in some kind
0: mm-hmm. of way. Exactly. It it, it survives. So again, this is how the public or how people who don't understand this can totally misread what you're seeing play out on the street. You you see the girl out there working it. Uh, you know, yes. stop in cars, dressed in skimpy clothes. Acting like she likes Yeah, be acting, you know, and, and they're oh, she's just a whore, right, like we talked about. This is what she wants. She deserves whatever she gets. But they have no idea of all the history and <laughs> the layers that can be going on. behind just the veneer of what looks like choice and, um, you know, carefree activity. <laughs> thinkable to on her and people think women are a She said anytime time she was a customer, she didn't know <coughs> the case would kill her. Because the violence was so calm that every time she I mean, this pretty much <laughs> is <laughs> from a of evidence of the violence that's inherent in prostitution if you have to have a panic button to hit because you don't really know if you're going to survive the encounter with the sex fighter or not. So, as one survivor told um, Melissa Farley, what rape is to others is normal to us. So this is, To me, that was one of the most eye-opening um, and poignant uh, statements I've ever heard about what the reality is for women who are in prostitution, sex trade, traffic, prostituting, or whatever. Can you imagine? I mean, anybody who might be a survivor of a sexual assault must just be you know, totally blown away by it. Now, what else, what else defines and characterizes the experiences of women in sex trade? Well, their leading cause of death is homicide. In a study in Colorado, they found that prostituting women are nearly eight times more likely to be murdered than women of similar age and race not involved in prostitution activity. And prostituting women are 51 times more likely to be murdered than if they worked in a liquor store, which was the second most risky.
1: For women. They are
0: specific targets of violence because they are involved in prostitution. Gary Ridgway is a prime example. You might have heard of him as the Green River Killer. So he was convicted. He was considered America's most prolific serial killer. He confessed to murdering more than sixty women and girls, most of whom were twenty-two years old or younger. 20-year time span. Why was he able to do this? Because he targeted women who were considered um, throwaway women, women who weren't important because they were involved in prostitution. So here's what he said. I picked prostitutes as my victims because I hate most prostitutes and I do not want to pay them for sex. I also picked up prostitutes as victims because they were easy to pick up without being noticed. I knew they would not be reported missing right away, and might never be reported missing. I picked prostitutes because I thought I could kill as many of them as I wanted without getting caught. So, as one might surmise from all the violence, the the assaults, the rapes, the abandonment, and so forth, the the homicide, that premature death, then characterizes um, prostitution. So in the, in the study from Colorado, the, you had the average age of death was 34. You had 19% dying from homicide, 18% drug ingestion, 20% accidents, 9% alcohol-related, and 8% percent hiv aids infection. Anybody volunteering for the job? I think
1: so. I assume that the accidents are, <coughs> I mean, we're not talking
0: they weren't talking, mm-hmm. nice. they, but still, I think there is increased risk for accidents, like on the street, vehicular accidents, you know, being out engaging in traffic
1: and things like that. I wonder if like suicide, isn't there a high suicide
0: rate? Um, I had to look at the study, I you don't remember they said I wonder the if the know.
1: accidents could have been like, you
0: know. I think they would have broken it out, but yeah, yeah. I can't speak, but I do have the study, so I'd be happy to should you. So you want to see what prostitution does over time? This is an example. So this is a series of mugshots of a young woman arrested, serially arrested for prostitution. Um, I have quite a few of these that were given to me by a law enforcement The
1: Same
0: individual same So. I, I don't know her particular age, she's, obviously she's quite young, but she can't, she's, she's over 18 or I wouldn't have her pictures. Um, but yeah, so it's, you know, it starts in the top left, goes across, comes back down, so the, letter, the bottom right is the, is the last. So you can see the, the totality of the damage over time. And in, in any of these pictures, the law enforcement officer told me that the, the time range was anywhere from one to four years. So at most we're talking about a four-year time And that's in her case, I don't think... There was an officer who was seeing these mugshots and getting the picture that something like was really wrong, and he started collecting the symbol. Um, this is another um, common element, common experience for women in prostitution. So, they're, at least in the United States, they're frequently tattooed. And you can really think of it as a form of branding, mm-hmm. a way of um, marking her as property and not only do they brand them, but they're denigrating them, dehumanizing them through what's tattooed as in this particular example. Now, um, you know, we, we had some of the conversation earlier today about the idea of sex as poor, a job. Some of the groups who promote that ideology will actually pro- develop safety literature for people in prostitution, with advice on things to do in order to make their experiences in prostitution safer for safe. So here's just some of the examples of what you buy. Um, of to buy. Part the pubic hair and look for crabs and their eggs. Pull we'll gently really along the hair with your fingers and look for lights or anything that moves. I don't know what else <laughs> that might be moving, but um, okay. Um, if the condom breaks or slips off, be careful to scoop the semen out from inside without scratching and lining of the vagina with fingernails. Putting on a condom with your mouth is useful if the client does not want to use them. This can be modified condoms. Plan a safe line before any job, before every job. Here's a good one. Accidentally kick a shoe under the bed, and while receive, retrieving it, check for knives, handcuffs, or rope. <coughs> The situa- if the situation escalates beyond your control or comfort, leave your mark in the car. Leave fingerprints. Leave DNA. This is serious? Why would we tell people to run <laughs> for your life? I mean, I understand that not everybody in prostitution is ready to exit when we want them to. That, you know, they're, they're not waiting there you know, just to run into our arms. But what I don't understand is why everybody who cares about these women isn't saying that we are here to help you in any way possible to leave this life from your bed. And this is what they'd rather do. Enable them to stay in it and give this kind of trash advice. Okay, don't wear a change of jewelry um, you can be strangled with. Don't relax after the job's done. Uh, that can be the time he'll assault you. Relax after he's gone. All right, so that's the sad picture of um, you know a brief snapshot of what a daily what a day to day life is in the sex trade. Now, a little bit of look at the brain and trauma, <laughs> and this is where I should just have Kathy come up here and go sit down. So I'll, uh, we're going to have a brief look at this, and I need
1: to grab something real quick.
0: learning and brain biochemistry associated with these phenomena and various psychiatric disorders. So basically then, the elements of this paradigm, we're looking for ongoing high stress. This argues that ongoing high stress creates chronic physiological hyperarousal that it results in imbalance of this equilibrium between approach and avoidance mind-body systems that fight flight. Like Talking about, and that it decouples the usually coordinated and balanced excitatory and inhibitory physiological neurochemical response systems and leaves to out of filter and overly intense swings between, between the two systems. So the chronic trauma then is completely messing with the brain's neurochemistry. The natural response systems that are meant to protect are basically kept on. Terms are on hyper um, 24/7, and then this has long-term devastating consequences to how the person just lives a daily life. Now, where this is rooted, this biochemistry is really associated with the amygdala, where this is where the unconscious traumatic memories are housed, where fight, flight, or freezing and this is where the signals come to these cortisol or cortisol or other neurotransmitters. So this is the part of the brain that's that's responsible for all this. Now cortisol. This is a stress hormone. You've probably heard about it. The one that you can buy those uh, some kind of pills so that you don't get the belly fat. <laughs> I've
1: thought about it. So.
0: <laughs> okay. But um, anyway, so it's a stress hormone, and the more that it's on, the more you can have negative effects. You know, it, when it's working properly, it's, it's re- regulating your metabolism, regulating your blood pressure and insulin release. And but under extreme pressure over time. You can have things like impaired memory, widespread cell death, decreased developmental capacity, and even physical ailments uh, like suppressed thyroid and blood sugar bounces and so forth. Now a little bit more about um, neurotransmitters. These are basically just chemicals that tell the brain what it's thinking to do, and there's all kinds of them. And here's some of the ones you've everybody heard. anybody heard of serotonin? What serotonin do? Okay. Dopamine. Reward center. So this is a, dopamine is one kind of the pleasure uh, ones so associated with pleasure. Epinephrine. It fights like you. Like you Norepinephrine Compton comfortable Oxytocin This is bond associated with uh, pleasure, sexual arousal, pleasure, insects, orgasm, release, actually a lot with uh, bonding So both in labor, childbirth, the oxytocin is released And when the woman breastfeeds, oxytocin is released And this creates the bonding hormone, especially she bonds with her baby it's also released after orgasm, so she bonds with her lover. And that's a no so, I am sorry, I had them all written down and what they all did, and I can't find them paper. So as we've already said, these these really so being that they're, they're the amygdala, this calling the shot about which of these gets released, um, they Triggers, events happening around us are what activate that release. And when someone is triggered, they may feel or act as though they're um, back in time, back in the event of danger, even though they are not. So normally, we get that trigger, we're in the moment. But if you're a survivor of trauma, that trigger can just be left on on, And these chemicals are coming, calling for certain responses that aren't called for, given the circumstances. Now, uh, a, a, another consequence of this is that the more this wiring happens, the more uh, entrenched in, in a, Think about a trench, right? Or a, a path or a road. The more that it's driven, the more that it's locked, the deeper and more rugged it gets. The same way with this. The more these same uh, neural transmitters are hit and released, the more common the pathway becomes, it just comes deeper, deeper, more rutted and more rudded, and it creates a pattern that's hard to get the brain to shift out of it have to jump out of the tracks. And this messes with left brain and right brain function. It, it, which is normally more blendedly, but it's breaking that down. So trauma or sustained high stress in childhood. Damages the corpus callosum. Did I say that right? You got it. <laughs> okay. Which connects the left brain to the right brain. So we're talking about this area here. So childhood trauma is, is going to be damaging then, and this actually can result in unknown reactionary emotional states, depression, anxiety disorder, and memory limitations, to name a few. <coughs> So, I'm sure many of you have heard of triggers before, uh, but that's what's really setting this off. These events, uh, perceptions, feelings that cause the amygdala to release certain neurotransmitters. Did anybody think of some triggers? No. no. Sensory. Sensory things. Has yeah. anybody ever experienced this before? Anybody want to share something that, that triggered them?
1: It's not a dangerous, it's not a dangerous thing, but you know, at Christmas time if you smell pine, mm-hmm. you think of maybe where you grew up if it was a pleasant thing. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people have like associate different mm-hmm. kinds of cooking smells with mm-hmm. particular family functions.
0: Right. Anybody else? I want, to I want to share one? But um,
1: my sister died and she started we more right to her and it was very traumatic so, you know, fair sale, obviously. But I was driving down the road one day, and I don't know how long this was, I forget it, but I saw a car, exactly like the one she drove, and just completely fell apart. Wow. Yeah. 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 It's yeah. Yeah. So a little bit you know, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. definitely Yeah. It's good that you can don't, you know, you don't, you're right. not
0: expecting. It's a very unexpected. Yeah, right. so unexpected. Like yeah. A car, you know, like your sister's down, suddenly
1: right.
0: you're just flooded with emotion some of some in the actors sometimes we makes it lose power
3: she had a sister that I was working on, it. she was thinking about that, and she just suddenly collapsed. And her eyes go back, and I mean, she just, this an association we had, we took her to the hospital, and her eyes are ready We finally realized as we began talking, she just, she had been hurt in the past, and not
0: Context of a police interview or a court mm-hmm. versus, and want I mean, an impact that would have. Absolutely, and um, there's an organization out of this program called Northern Virginia Family Services.
1: They have a victim of the rape team and uh, a people uh, coming over. They do a the program,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and one of the things If they're speaker, they'll dissociate during the hearing and they'll be denied Asylum,
0: file they think that they're lying. Yeah. And 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 they you know, it was years later when my client came back, she did dissociate, she's completely disconnected through the whole process trying to work here, and I was so befuddled that I knew she wasn't lying. Um, but it was later that she came back <coughs> and was the sexually abused by a grandfather and raped by him. So she was automatically, and the incident that happened, she had been gang raped. Mm-hmm. she has been adjusted in gang So they do what they know how to do, mm-hmm. and it's automatic. They just go there right. automatic. So our brains are wired to survive. Right. So they automatically get into that process that's already Without having to consider Thank you so much for bringing that up. Okay. A practical implication of this
1: is if you have staff, volunteers working with the community mm-hmm. that
0: don't have understanding to design what's happening, mm-hmm. they can potentially attribute it to something to especially oh. in different cultures, even here in the U.S. So, what's horrible then is the whole thing is complicated by sincere people labeling something in mind. Well, there are things that are evil, but in this case, Mm -hmm. this is very different. And there's nothing, um, there's nothing potentially, this, this is not threatening persons around them. This is something that's happening. I don't think mm-hmm. But people will begin to pray or respond to it in ways that would indicate something else. Mm-hmm. Which can really complicate the human body. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. So and also I uh, have another client that uh had psychogenic seizures. So there are seizures, there are real seizures but uh, they're triggered psychically, you know, uh, psychologically rather than
0: um, and they typically have a trauma history. So when you said that, because my client she's an adult, um, the difficulty in her healing process has been she's overwhelmed by the members dispositions, fear, emotional states, and the people at our church. Are, um, is a demonic and I about it demonic or not demonic? You know, he talks about seizures in the Bible. Uh, does it? they when they go into that mode with her, no, it freaks her out, and she feels like they don't believe her, wow. or or then she's uh, sad and depressed because why won't this thing go away or something wrong, or they'll get
1: irritated and frustrated because she's not wanting to get better. Like I
0: I had sometimes we have enough training doctors that. Ms. Springfield has worked a lot with survivors. And if you her a she helped write the curriculum. So I had her in one session talk about the distinction because she's worked with both situations. And she had clients who had mm-hmm. She said one of the things for her is, it's something really demonic. It's you feel, it, there's a sense of Threatening to everyone around wow. But she said when, when the psychological this is a um, coping method, it's, it's, it's challenging to that person. It's not personally threatening to anyone else. There's no sense of evil. There's no evil about it. And so that was to me that was very helpful as a distinction. Because when you're about something evil, it's demonic, you can tell. Them. It's yeah. creepy it's threatening. Mm-hmm. Um, it's threatening to everyone. And it's destructive. This is not, you don't get the same sense this. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, I've heard things people prayed over yeah. In fact, it's happened sometimes here. Um, but Robin's voice and came city, when the volunteers the church is going to help, and sometimes the first thing they want to do is by on like to Stark start demon well, this place a really good conversation, just what Beth said, of the, the recombinization and the exacerbation of the sense of alienation that is experienced in of the client here in an in area not too so far from here, because towards people coming in, actually Beth said, laying on hands trying to cast off. Has anything manifested itself? Has, I mean, we're not even talking about fainting or, or seizures at this point. They're just automatically assuming that if you're in prostitution you must be to with death. Like okay. That's how it's just totally destructive. So sincere, so
1: sincere. You can be sincere as well.
0: Well, and it's not that there isn't a place for, you know, that I, I mean, I've heard of, of definite things that are demonic, and I don't doubt that. But I think by and large, what we're dealing with is not in many cases that involve. If you, if you see the demonic, you'll probably
1: and like, don't you think there's far more cases of use of that than there are actually actual demons I yeah that's basically what we're saying yeah I think that's right the real distortion you know the evil one uses you know it is an environmental yeah. kind of evil and so he can use evil can use others to really hurt and destroy others. That's like the job of people, instead of healing. Is Jesus.
0: Alright, so disassociation, uh, hyper of course we've talked about this some already, but the thing that this will lead to is difficulty and staying asleep, and of course that's going to make you, if I don't sleep, I get really cranky. <laughs> And I always say,
1: bomb! When you're talking about children, too, because are so in the school age, and the fact that while they get up after the trauma like it affects a lot of different abilities that you don't necessarily yeah. and thing. you
0: lose period of, you just lose period of time. that's another great I'm so glad you're here. <laughs> At first I was forward? People disagreement? I don't know. No,
1: just... Oh, um, yes, so say how long?
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Is um, probably
1: another half hour. we... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We're at
0: the Yeah, we can just crowd... Uh, I mean thought about this. If you need to go to the restroom, feel <laughs> free to pop out we'll go forward and we'll just try to fix up a little bit earlier. So, avoidance issues. Again, fairly straightforward. You're trying to avoid the things that are associated with trauma, the people, the feelings, the activities. Um, you're detaching yourself, you're restricting the range of feelings and emotions, and so forth. Trauma reenactment. Now, this is an important one I really wanted to highlight because I think this is really seen when it comes to. Uh, sex trafficking, prostitution. The idea that the individual is attempting to relive or master uh, some kind of previous traumatic experience through <laughs> symbolic ways, and it's so subliminal, it's so really kind of un- in the unconscious that this is happening, but it results in very destructive uh, processes of abuse, where they, you know, it might escalate their, uh, their risk-taking behavior, and they, they even seem driven to compulsive and destructive activities. And so I think you definitely see this, particularly in, some of the, the, in the U.S., with the domestic minor sex trafficking. This, this type of scenario is very true. With the, you have sexual abuse survivors, and then suddenly these girls are drawn into, you know, youthful, or they're already vulnerable to people like Pence, and then they just keep reacting out, even though they're even sometimes they eventually see what they're doing. Also, with that, which I, there's uh, with the um, they'll act out sexually by, targeting uh, on another child, mm-hmm. and there's a there is a distinction, and I think this is used coming into understanding the difference between a true pedophile and somebody who has uh, a
1: problem with sexual behaviors a lot of the problem sexual abuse are a result of abuse sexual acts. Now, you see a
0: little kid, you know, I had who was a little girl who's a second grader at the time, and her little buddy,
1: you wouldn't consider this to be typical sexual abuse. But to me, a really good example, which is her, her little buddy, her friend up the street,
0: little boy, um, enables her into a room, locks the door, uh, her behind the chair, pulled her pants down, and attempted to um, put his finger in her vagina, freaked her out. So, but it was premeditated, mm-hmm. which is not typical of sexual exploration in seven year olds. So, in mm-hmm. long story short, we told the mom, the parents had a conversation about it, addressed it, to and told the again, he would say, We're, You're going to come spend the night, I'm going to so, to spend the night play the game again. And uh, she ended up having PTSD and to the point where she would have uh, auditors in saying that she was bad. I think that was Mm -hmm. interesting with anyone. But the likelihood that little boy just woke up one day and decided this was the game he was intent on making somebody play with him. Now, is he a pedophile? No, he's not a pedophile. Um, unfortunately, I don't think the uh, yeah, with little uh, boy
1: would have it addressed. But not all people who are sexually abused either go on to perpetrate. He learned that from somewhere. He did learn from somewhere. He learned right. right.
0: Like his was, yeah. But Even in families, you have had clients where the older brother, brother were perpetrated. Um, I she perpetrated on her younger sister, and then that younger sister was getting ready to perpetrate on um, the youngest brother when it got found out. The teenager is now a registered sex offender. Is she really a registered sex offender? I doubt it. Um, but was she sexually abused? Yeah. Because it's really about trying to, like you said, understand it and, and master it, because that's what play is play the child's way of being able to overcome and find mastery and try out their goals. So when they do that systematic play,
1: it's really about trying to resolve the time. The problem is it doesn't it's accepting and that's why it's destructive.
0: Oh, thank you. Well, just wrapping up our discussion of symptoms, I, I, again, yeah, I'm not going to go into all these, but I just wanted to highlight quickly on the suicide pseudos- suicidal ideation part, to, to think about even that can be an example of a resistive um, mentality that the idea that I'm going to take my own life so you can't do this anymore, that you won't have control anymore, so that you know, it, it, it's not necessarily a, um, the essence of futility or hopelessness, it can be an ideation, a fantasy of control and an escape um, or, of, of this individual isn't going to master me anymore. There's an interesting nuance about the the suicidal ideation. And then just the main point here is think about all these symptoms. So what you're seeing, the behavior you're seeing, how how does it make sense in the context of their abuse? So take the context (coughs) of the abuse, take the behavior, what what if something in their behavior is going to be making sense in terms of um, what's happened to them in the past? That's what we're looking for. So lots of psychological challenges in with PTSD. Huge list, as you can see here. And we've talked about several of them already. And then if you go to to complex PTSD, there's really ingrained. Um, And you can see what they're they're leading to the the results, the outcomes of these different states. Now, what I want to say is um, I'd be happy to mail any of you a uh, copy of the handouts here I expect you all to write all this down. So if anybody wants to send around a sheet of paper, you want to write down your address, uh, not email address, I'll send you a hard printed out copy of this presentation in the mail. Um, just, or give me a card later. Yeah. Does, does anybody know if this conference is having a place like, to post all these things? I don't, I don't know. Mm-hmm. You know, they did publish something else yeah. because we have to send them after the yeah. conference. We have to send them uh, either right clicking
1: or to do easier? Okay, can do that too. Yeah, I mean, I can do i it there we can access it. Yeah, All right. So, you do that. That sounds good.
0: Okay. So. Okay. so. so. And then ultimately, we've already kind of alluded to this, that this creates a cycle that we can't, that the individual really can't get out of it. They have the, the trigger value of a feeling, they dissociate with the various coping skills, they're relying on that, versus so a continual reliance on it, and then it, you have further prevention of the sample capacity. So it's this tail, the dog chasing his tail, that we really can't get out of the cycle. Now, um, Moving into the, la- the last quarter of the presentation here, um, took a quick look at comma bond to partic- and how um, particularly dynam- particular dynamics with tense. So, attachment theory, um, I assume most of you in the room probably are already mm-hmm. well familiar with attachment theory, uh, but you know, four main categorizations here secure, avoidance, and then my organized course and kind of escalating in their degree of dysfunction and then how the adult individuals come out of those types of uh, environments, uh, presents themselves later in life. But then, we need to not only think about you know, so these oftentimes are the results of the types of uh, abusive or dysfunctional activity that's going on in the home, things that are being committed but it's very important that we not forget the abusive omission that sometimes the trigger might actually be as an outcome of the fact that the person who didn't take action in the family to respond to the abuse. And that this is what triggers the individual to have a a, a over the top response. So at any rate, so we can see that the the omission can be a failure to prevent or contain abuse, the lack of a predictable response or lack of validation of what's happened. Now, traumatic bonding, um, I'm not going to go into too much detail, but Judah Herman's covered it well, and I'll just make a few little points here. That captivity, and, and, and in terms of the sex trafficking and prostitution, you don't need to think of the person that as captive as being caged or locked in a kitchen or something like that. But they're under a the power dynamic; they're under the control of another individual. So think of captivity in that framework. But captivity is brings the victim into prolonged contact with the perpetrator, creates a special type of relationship. One of coercive control, and the goal of the perpetrator is to instill in his victim not only fear of death, but gratitude for being allowed to live. An attachment between the hostage and captor is the rule rather than the exception. So when you're dealing with sex trafficking survivors, we're talking about people often normally gonna be bonded to their perpetrator, to the primary uh, individual, sex trafficker. Now, pimps are actually also trying to fulfill different roles in an individuals' lives. Whether it's physical, or financial, or emotional, they're trying to hone in on the vulnerabilities of those that they're exploited and appearing initially to meet a need. So the kind of roles that they come at or uh, present as are protector. I'm gonna, you know, you be out there, but I'm protecting you, and I'm you know, I'm just, I love you, and I'll fight for you. The friend. Oh, I haven't listened a year. You can tell me anything the lover the boyfriend even the husband so uh, uh romance and, and you know showering them with uh, affection in the beginning often and, and coming at them with an idea of, of a real relationship and then kind of a baby switch idea bake them with romance and then put them on the hook and then switch over to the pimp role if you really really me, you'll sleep with all the moon for me a father, the enforcer of discipline, a teacher, a mentor. I'll show you what to do. And um, you're the victim. That if the, the, you are the victim. That you're a person who's too stupid to know what to do.
1: Um, I, I have to assist you.
0: So this is another way in which to come at the, the survivor. So tips they really don't work excellent manipulators. It capitalizes the fact that the people that they're exploiting don't know what, quote, normal relationships are. They are like wolves to the scent of blood. They know how to smell out of a victim like that. And they make no bones about it. If you look at their literature, at their videos, they're quite explicit and open about the fact that they look to exploit vulnerable women. Now, this is actually a picture of Snoop Dogg at the MTV Awards with two women on rock beaches that he be, quote pent. So this is what makes a guy a real player. Now, you may have heard of Benderman's Charter Coercion, and this was developed in connection with psychological torture or torture for um, political prisoners, but it has complete application for what we're talking about here. It's like a playbook, like a manual for such traffickers' pence a strategy and effect, a, stra- a, a mental coercion strategy and what that will reproduce in the victim, a, co- a type of compliance or a state which will ultimately help render them under the control of the trafficker. So you isolate the victim. You deprive yeah. them from other social supports. You make that, that makes the victim dependent upon the quote, you know, the pimp of the trafficker. You monopolize your perception. So you, you, you're shutting off other stimuli. You're they really have a small world in which to look at. There's nothing to distract them from their immediate context. You induce stability and exhaustion, a very common tactic by Pence. You know, keep them up all night you know, sleep and don't let them sleep or don't let them come home until they earn uh, the right amount of money they're supposed to bring home. And you, the end result of that is weakening their, their mental and physical ability to resist. You enforce threats anxiety and despair to keep them in that kind of un- unknowing state that always keeps them off kilter. But you might use occasional indulgences as a the reward kind of idea. Well, if you go along with what I want you to do, a, I'll take you out and you can get a big back or uh, you can get your nails done or something like that. And then, I, this idea of just demonstrating omnipotence, like a God type of uh, presence. In the victim's life, so it's really futile for the individual to show that kind of resistance. Enforcing trivial demands about everything from when you go to the bathroom to what kind of when you eat, how much money you have in your pocket, all that kind of stuff. And then a big one, degradation, just outright animalization of the individual. Stripping girls naked while there's a group of men in the room and just having her stand there that type of degradation. So, the, the, trust me, these are common tactics used by in, pimps in, in, in prostitution. Again, it's like a playbook. Now, just a brief example, here are the list of rules to a, quote, pimp home that a pimp, uh, one pimp decided to create for his establishment. So, those were, never disrespect your pimp. Uh, never let anyone, but basically, never let anyone else disrespect your pen. Trust your pen. Stay loyal. Never lie. Stay honest with your pen. And this one I don't really get, but never let black people see your face or eyes. Um, black only see the back of your head. Your pen should be the one and only black person you ever see. So this is evidently an African American pen. Um, Respond and talk to your pimp with manners and respect at all times using daddy in each sentence. Be down and dirty. Side or die for your pimp even if it involves sacrificing yourself. Your pimp is your priority, your primary, and your number one, and you are to see to his every need. When in doubt, ask your pimp. He was not a master soldier. And always obey your pimp. So you get this sense of this omnipotence, this futility of resistance, this utter control and management of an, an alienation, monopolization of perception. A lot of things are illustrated right here in this list of rules. Now, another pimp that is a good illustration of what we're talking about here was a Mr. Brown who referred to himself as Prince. He was a pimp in New Jersey and for almost 20 years. And he controlled women with physical abuse and drugs, uh, and if they didn't, you know, punish them, if they didn't make their quotas and so forth. And eventually he was arrested and indicted, along with his 72-year-old mother, who assisted him in the enterprise. But so here's the parents. Now, he actually had a throne in his living room. He wore
1: crowns.
0: Okay. So, total it's a whole subculture, psychological domination. It's just—it's—it's un- it's almost unfathomable what this goes on. But this is the type of environment in which these women were finding so themselves. They're—they're living and working for a prince who has a throne in New Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> I guess you haven't seen this country estates on a cleaning Country or something. <laughs> right. So. Again, I, I, if you're going to be in this field, I really encourage you to look at the pimp literature that's out there. It's, it's so insightful, and you will not believe some of the things that you read. This is just one little snippet from one particular pimp. The name of the game is, is Pimp the Lane. Take a whore and make her live in shame. It makes no difference how much she screams or holler. All that matters is the, is the almighty dollar. I'm the math and I swear to God, I will never work because it's too damn hard. So that's the philosophy of the exploiters. You can buy books on Amazon. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I have a couple of film doc quote documentaries that you can see about pending in the American context and stuff goes down American intent. The, they're hard to watch, but it's very insightful material. Alright, so wrapping it up. healing the Wounds. In terms of some overarching principles most important, I think this really does, this what Beth said earlier, we have to believe that recovery is possible. Uh, obviously, you all do, we wouldn't even be in this room here together today. But sometimes believing that is an easier said than done. But that, that's a very important principle that healing happens in relationships, which is what Rebecca was saying earlier in her video. And we, of course, need to understand trauma and its impact, which we've already been talking about. Ensure our cultural confidence, promote safety, and support client control and choice and autonomy. So, it's giving them back their power, their choice. So, in terms of recovery as possible, I think we have to look to Christ for that. He bore our wounds so that we could be healed. And hopefully, through time, we'll be able to share that reality with victims and survivors so that they would know that they have a survivor who's been who, who died who experienced real pain that God is not a loop uh, I, to me that's one of the most comforting things about our faith is that I, I have a God who died I had a, a God who was mocked and suffered and beaten and abused and that I think is a great comfort to know that <laughs> he knows more than he's been there he's bore it <coughs> As Rebecca shared, healing happens in relationships, and this is very important for helping these victims and these survivors um, transition to a healthier way of living. So, helping them to experience safe, authentic, positive relationships, um, breaking the pattern of exploited relationships, and to get, the danger is that intimacy is triggering. The closer we get, the more we we start to get distrustful, and bam, we relapse, and we're back where we started from. So it's this catch-22: How do we press beyond that 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 boundary that, that triggers us to draw back? But Evans and Sullivan say that if if you're in therapy, that the therapist must strive to be the supporting, validating person that so many survivors never had. So if, if you're in therapy, you have to be. Um, Kind of that fairy godmother type of person that person that one person who's going to be safe and secure. Yeah, and that's the thing that I really um thought your daughter so intuitive to because her, when she came up with her um program, her requirement was that always in the healing process They he to go back and involve the house care or whoever they're the primary attachment figure, they're the yes. ones that are really going to help to make those, um, that healing process a more intimate, it's not sexual, intimate, it's yes. a and the intimacy, for the complex
1: trauma, which is, these, uh, victims are, it does
0: To, to change the hardwiring process that you talked about lasts a lifetime. So they, there were, they did some studies on the, remember when the children were adopted from Romania, the mm-hmm. wall came down, severe, severe, severe lacked. So a lot of the developmental uh, <laughs> delay. But what they found uh, several years later. for the children who were put in nurturing homes, um, the the, the, um, development strides that they made was pretty significant, which goes to show that our brain, when we're in the environment where we have that um, healing environment, then our brain will change. So that's great, right, this is the idea of the plasticity of the brain. The brain is changeable, that can, even though we get these grooves, these ruts, that if you try with certain techniques and uh, a real cognizant effort, you can shift out of those ruts, so very good point. And again, about relationships, not only is the therapist relationship important, but helping the survivors of other social supports, and I just would add that, I don't know if you've heard of Rochelle Dalla, but she's a researcher in Nebraska and a lot of um, articles on prostitution and so forth. And in one of her uh, studies, it's called You Can't Hustle All Your, all Your Life, the, the significance of the church as the social support that helps women exit prostitution. So she didn't ask about it, but the, the women who actually were successful in transitioning all spoke of it. So she had a whole section in her article about it. So creating some kind of social environment is that these people can connect with, some network that will help them. And I, and I hope, by all means, the church will be there. Of course, we need to promote physical safety. And uh, this is not, none of this is uh, new information to most of you. <laughs> pretty straightforward ideas. But that definitely being remindful of potential triggers, things that... Maybe slamming doors or like that, even candlelight in some cases can can be a trigger. So being mindful of what those possibly can be and promote promoting emotional safety. The main thing I wanted to um, note here is that we have to be tolerant of a range of emotions that may be expressed by the client. So expect hostility, expect rage, expect. Uh, inappropriate sexual behavior. We need to ex- expect it and be prepared for it and, accept and not be shocked and accept it and, and just move forward and, try and get behind what, the, you know, work with the client and find out what's behind that behavior. But that is one of the, the key aspects of you know, providing an emotional statement. They trust and that you're not going to freak. You're not going to uh, put this, categorize them as some kind of monster or pariah that they've acted in this way, then they might be might actually have shredded progress in your the intimacy of your relationship in your, own, in your um, therapeutic healing relationship. I think it's also very critical that we create atmospheric safety. And I've seen how how this plays out in juvenile like juvenile detention facilities. I'm shocked. We have sexually traumatized girls in these facilities and they're playing the most grotesque music you've ever heard that is just reinforcing to them the notion that they're bitches and hoes and so on and so forth. Like, wow, we have any hope that these girls are going to come out of here better? When this is the kind of again, environmental bubble that they're in, just telling them that this is you know, they're bitches and hoes. So, appropriate music, appropriate imagery. Um, They might like some of, the, some of the, you know, pop music icons that are they, like, is Lady Gaga really the kind of poster we want to have in our place? Is she really the icon of healing that we're wanting to have plastered on the wall? Probably not. So I think this is really where it is. I think it's an underestimated area where we can create an atmosphere that's safe, a healing atmosphere. Uh, promoting safety, mm-hmm. you guys, I'm, I'm, I'm going fast because we're getting near the end of time and I just want to get to this. So, big picture model. We've really already talked about um, a lot of these things today. We've talked about attachments and we even um, mentioned the two-factor model. We didn't mention it in this terminology, but the idea that the first factor is what happened, the trauma that happened, while the second factor is all the things that did not happen and that it's equally important that we identify um, the the triggers for both. So for instance, I was reading one case where a man, uh, he'd been sexually abused, not by by someone in his family, but his mother was just this completely out to lunch kind of individual. He just was not cognizant, clueless, neglectful, and so forth. So he, as an adult, had Huge anger problems, And it was really set off by people that he considered incompetent. And what they ended up doing was figuring out that this was an abandonment trigger. It, had, it wasn't a abuse or a sexual abuse trigger. It was linked to his mother's abandonment and incompetency as a mother that had incited his rage as an adult when he encountered incompetence. All right, and we we really touched on the mind control model, and I gave you a bit of chart of coercion. What we're talking about there are brainwashing techniques, and so helping the survivor understand this is the this is a technique. This is what was this is what it accomplished, and maybe helping them look at their experiences in the context of a, of a mind control uh, framework. It's sort of like an aha for a lot of survivors. Oh, this. And then they can release them with some of the, the, the self-shame, like, why did I take this? Why did I stay in this? And they understand so much better um, why they were manipulated. And then we've um, already talked about the biophysics paradigm, we're looking at the body, um, neurochemistry, and psychological systems and how that uh, works together with how that works with trauma. So we've already really talked about some of these big picture models, but these are things that I encourage you to learn more about if you end up working with this population. That you look at each of these models, and I think they all bring something to the table. It's not an either or. It's like here's this plenty of, of models out there that we can use to create the right solution for different individuals. Um, the Parks Paradigm. This is really looking at addressing uh, dissociation. So uh, Ron is a guy who developed this idea of a continuum of awareness that ranges from normal suppression, denial, repression to partial and full dissociation. And he has this thing called that, uh, where so B is the um, behavior that's what we do. Affect is what we that's what we're feeling. Sensation what we perceive in our body. Knowledge. Uh, what we think and what we remember. So if we're fully integrated, we're basking. <laughs> we're present, all of these are present, we're cognizant of, of our behavior, we're, we're, we're cognizant of our feelings, we're cognizant of our sensations, we're cognizant of what we're thinking in our, in our memory. So that's a good state to be in. But working with these clients, they're not basking, they're broken. <laughs> So, the goal is to integrate those parts that are habitually (coughs) dissociated. And lastly, trauma focused cognitive behavioral behavioral therapy. And again, I'm not going to get much into the weeds in this because, as I mentioned earlier today, uh, the NACSW is coming out with that special edition uh, journal. Issue that's focused on sex trafficking. And one of the articles in there by Dr. Becca Johnson is on trauma focused cognitive behavioral therapy for sex trafficking victims. I'm really excited about that article and really encourage you to, to look at it in detail. But and actually, Becca's name should be at the bottom here because <laughs> um, I, I'm citing her here. But anyway, there is a framework, this quote, practice framework, which looks at addressing each of these issues within, um, in this problem focused kind of focus behavioral therapy. Now, Becca has actually altered this paradigm for sex trafficking. She's simplified it, and you can read about that in the, um, the article that will be coming out. But the main thing that she pointed in her article that I did not want to skip over today was this idea of a, in one of her adaptations, she said, <coughs> common narrative portion of this model that victims are should not only be encouraged to share their traumatic experiences done to them, but to encourage victims to share about traumatic experiences they may have perpetrated or done to others. They may have been forced to do or they may have just done it. <coughs> and the piece I think is really, really overlooked in our current treatment with survivors. More common than not, that they, the pimp line had them perpetrating violence against each other, playing each other against each other. Mm -hmm. So it's really important that they own up or acknowledge what that is, any guilt they might feel about that, and discuss that and contextualize it. Um. All right. So, just lastly, you know, think about tangible things that we can replace. You know, the trafficker was providing this one name that a really important survivor. can we replace that? That's uh, a good strategy for helping to break the bond that traffickers have over the victims. And then the abuser, that offers friendship, you know, building other social networks and community contacts. That's, and you know, we've already stressed that. But really important that advocates be patient and recognize that abusers often create dependence <coughs> over emotional, and also, that we need to honor when really we express love and desire to be with that person. Um, but that isn't necessarily all, you know, we, we kind of draw back and forth that they, they have feelings with this individual, it's not necessarily entirely bad. We just need to have, help them look at that in a different way. So, it's good that, that you want a relationship and that you love this person, but so, really, we're going to do is help them break it down. So using the stage to change inside uh, ambivalence. For example, if a client says, I love him so much, but I hate it when he beats me up, a worker could say, you you want a relationship that is loving and safe. So you show the cognitive, the cognitive dissonance between <laughs> what they've been experiencing and what they say they want and what's really been going on. Oh, I forgot to plug in the computer. Jeez. <sighs> Don't be authoritarian. <laughs> they've had enough of that. We don't need to reinforce that. And think about strength. And think about the strength that have been created in the context, of the environment in which they've been working. So oftentimes, reframing the things that we we're we're you know we're telling them, that people are telling them that they are that they're a liar or bossy or paranoid. You know, reframe that so. And, in a way that can be positive, to give them something to feel, I do have a strength in this area. But of course, they might need to harness it in some way and contain it in some way. But they're not necessarily one hundred percent negative. So, you know, Mitchell says, "Well, you're being resourceful given the situation that you were in. You were bossy. Well, you were fearful of getting hurt and uncertain of how to get your needs met. That you were demanding <laughs> because you wanted to get needs And you're paranoid. Well, you're fearful of getting hurt." you complacent, well, you're overwhelmed. So this is, again, helping to build some strength. And I'm not going to go into alternatives to talk therapy very much because we had such a great presentation from Rebecca. I was really impressed with her sharing. And I do just want to reinforce that I totally agree with everything that Rebecca said and would even add um, animal therapy and gardening to that. And in particular with the animal therapy, I know of a survivor who her whole path out was because of a dog. She fell in love with a dog, and that changed her life. And um, I've also seen a program in, in Texas where the women were absolutely bubbling over joy because they canned flowers, and it was part of a community service project. So I just want to. Giving life, nurturing life, I think, um, so it's beyond just, you know, beyond words and arts and so forth, that activity that can even maintain, um, I have to take care of this thing, this plant, this animal, that can be very healing and nurturing. Understanding culture and trauma, I think that came up a lot with what Death. Uh, shared earlier, so I'm not going to dwell on that. There's my contact information. So I'm sorry, I know
3: that was a bit of a rush there at the end, but I wanted to respect your time. So at this point, I'll just talk and see if anybody has a question. Beth, and I've already reckoned myself that it's been less than 10 years. Don't
0: despair. Mm-hmm. Keep
3: your optimism. Keep your faith. Keep your uh, sense of enthusiasm. Because as a caregiver, you can really get into despair and anger anger for anger's sake doesn't work. Righteous anger does. But, you know, just anger... And and I think my my concern in listening is, around this table, all that we do, let
2: us maintain spiritual, physical, and emotional health ourselves. Amen.